Part Two, Chapter Twelve of *The Little Nugget* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Little Nugget*, Chapter Twelve. One. In those gray days, there was one thought of the many that occupied my mind, which brought with it a certain measure of consolation. It was the reflection that this state of affairs could not last for ever. The school term was drawing to a close. Soon I should be free from the propinquity which paralyzed my efforts to fight. I was resolved that the last day of term should end forever my connection with Stansted House and all that was in it. Mrs. Ford must find some other minion. If her happiness depended on the recovery of the little nugget, she must learn to do without happiness, like the rest of the inhabitants of this horrible world. Meanwhile, however, I held myself to be still on duty. By what torturous processes of thought I had arrived at the conclusion, I do not know. But I considered myself responsible to Audrey for the safeguarding of the little nugget, and no altered relations between us could affect my position. Perhaps mixed up with this attitude of mind was the less altruistic wish to foil smooth Sam. His continued presence at the school was a challenge to me. Sam's behavior puzzled me. I do not know exactly what I expected him to do, but I certainly did not expect him to do nothing. Yet day followed day, and still he made no move. He was the very model of a butler. But our dealings with one another in London had left me vigilant, and his inaction did not disarm me. It sprang from patience, not from any weakening of purpose or despair of success. Sooner or later I knew he would act swiftly and suddenly, with a plan perfected in every detail. But when he made his attack, it was the very simplicity of his methods that tricked me, and only pure chance defeated him. I have said that it was the custom of the staff of masters at Sandstead House School, in other words, of every male adult in the house except Mr. Fisher himself, to assemble in Mr. Abney's study after dinner of an evening to drink coffee. It was a ceremony, like most of the ceremonies at an establishment such as a school, where things are run on a schedule, which knew of no variation. Sometimes Mr. Abney would leave us immediately after the ceremony, but he never omitted to take his part in it first. On this particular evening, for the first time since the beginning of the term, I was seized with a prejudice against coffee. I had been sleeping badly for several nights and I decided that abstention from coffee might remedy this. I waited, for form's sake, till Glossop and Mr. Abney had filled their cups, then went to my room, where I lay down in the dark to wrestle with a more than usually pronounced fit of depression which had descended upon me. Solitude and darkness struck me as the suitable setting for my thoughts. At this moment smooth Sam Fisher had no place in my meditations. My mind was not occupied with him at all. When, therefore, the door, which had been ajar, began to open slowly, I did not become instantly on the alert. Perhaps it was some sound, barely audible, that aroused me from my torpor and set my blood tingling with anticipation. Perhaps it was the way the door was opening. An honest draft does not move a door furtively in jerks. I sat up noiselessly, tense and alert and then, very quietly, somebody entered the room. 
there was only one person in Sanstead House who would enter a room like that. I was amused. The impudence of the thing tickled me. It seemed so foreign to Mr. Fisher's usual cautious methods. This strolling in and helping oneself was certainly kidnapping deluxe. In the small hours I could have understood it, but at nine o'clock at night, with Glossop, Mr. Abney, and myself awake and liable to be met at any moment on the stairs, it was absurd. I marveled at Smooth Sam's effrontery. I lay still. I imagined that, being in, he would switch on the electric light. He did, and I greeted him pleasantly. "'And what can I do for you, Mr. Fisher?' For a man who had learned to control himself in difficult situations, he took the shock badly. He uttered a startled exclamation and spun round, open-mouthed. I could not help admiring the quickness with which he recovered himself. Almost immediately he was the suave, chatty Sam Fisher who had unbosomed his theories and dreams to me in the train to London. "'I quit,' he said pleasantly. "'The episode is closed. I am a man of peace, and I take it that you would not keep on lying quietly on that bed while I went into the other room and abstracted our young friend. Unless you have changed your mind again, would a fifty-fifty offer tempt you?' "'Not an inch.' "'Just so. I merely asked.' "'And how about Mr. Abney, in any case? Suppose we met him on the stairs?' "'We should not meet him on the stairs,' said Sam confidently. "'You did not take coffee tonight, I gather?' "'I didn't. No. Why?' He jerked his head resignedly. "'Can you beat it? I ask you, young man, could I have foreseen that, after drinking coffee every night regularly for two months, you would pass it up to-night of all nights? You certainly are my jinx, Sonny. You have hung the Indian sign on me all right.' His words had brought light to me. Did you drug the coffee? Did I? I fixed it up so that one sip would have an insomnia patient in dreamland before he had time to say good night. That stuff Rip Van Winkle drank had nothing on my coffee. And all wasted. Well, well. He turned towards the door. Shall I leave the light on, or would you prefer it off? On, please. I might fall asleep in the dark. Not you, and if you did, you would dream that I was there and wake up. There are moments, young man, when you bring me pretty near to quitting and taking to honest work." He paused. But not altogether. I have still a shot or two in my locker. We shall see what we shall see. I am not dead yet. Wait. I will, and some day, when I am walking along Piccadilly, a passing automobile will splash me with mud. A heavily-furred plutocrat will stare haughtily at me from the tonneau, and with a stare of surprise I shall recognize. Stranger things have happened. Be flip while you can, Sonny. You win so far, but this hoodoo of mine can't last forever." He passed from the room with a certain sad dignity. A moment later he reappeared. "'A thought strikes me,' he said. "'The fifty-fifty proposition does not impress you. Would it make things easier if I were to offer my cooperation for a mere quarter of the profit? Not in the least. It's a handsome offer. Wonderfully. I'm afraid I'm not dealing on any terms." He left the room, only to return once more. 
his head appeared, staring at me round the door, in a disembodied way, like the Cheshire cat. "'You won't say later on I didn't give you your chance,' he said anxiously. He vanished again, permanently this time. I heard his steps passing down the stairs. 2. We had now arrived at the last week of term, at the last days of the last week. The holiday spirit was abroad in the school. Among the boys it took the form of increased disorderliness. Boys who had hitherto only made Glossop bellow now made him perspire and tear his hair as well. Boys had merely spilt ink, now broke windows. The little nugget abandoned cigarettes in favor of an old clay pipe which he had found in the stables. As for me, I felt like a spent swimmer who sees the shore almost within his reach. Audrey avoided me when she could, and was frigidly polite when we met. But I suffered less now. A few more days, and I should have done with this phase of my life forever, and Audrey would once more become a memory. Complete quiescence marked the deportment of Mr. Fisher during these days. He did not attempt to repeat his last effort. The coffee came to the study unmixed with alien drugs. Sam, like lightning, did not strike twice in the same place. He had the artist's soul, and disliked patching up bungled work. If he made another move it would, I knew, be on entirely fresh lines. Ignoring the fact that I had had all the luck, I was inclined to be self-satisfied when I thought of Sam. I had pitted my wits against his, and I had won. It was a praiseworthy performance for a man who had done hitherto nothing particular in his life. If all the copybook maxims which had been drilled into me in my childhood and my early disaster with Audrey had not been sufficient, I ought to have been warned by Sam's advice not to take victory for granted till the fight was over. As Sam had said, his luck would turn sooner or later. One realizes these truths in theory but the practical application of them seldom fails to come as a shock. I received mine on the last morning but one of the term. Shortly after breakfast a message was brought to me that Mr. Abney would like to see me in his study. I went without any sense of disaster to come. Most of the business of the school was discussed in the study after breakfast, and I imagined that the matter had to do with some detail of the morrow's exodus. I found Mr. Abney pacing the room a look of annoyance on his face. At the desk, her back to me, Audrey was writing. It was part of her work to take charge of the business correspondence of the establishment. She did not look round when I came in, nor when Mr. Abney spoke my name, but went on writing as if I did not exist. There was a touch of embarrassment in Mr. Abney's manner, for which I could not at first account. He was stately, but with the rather defensive stateliness which marked his announcements that he was about to pop up to London and leave me to do his work. He coughed once or twice before proceeding to the business of the moment. "'Ah, Mr. Burns,' he said at length, "'might I ask if your plans for the holidays, the, ah, uh, earlier part of the holidays, are settled? No? Ah, excellent.' He produced a letter from the heap of papers on the desk. Ah, excellent! That simplifies matters considerably. I have no right to ask what I am about to, um, in fact, ask. 
I have no claim on your time in the holidays, but in the circumstances perhaps you may see your way to doing me a considerable service. I have received a letter from Mr. Elmer Ford which puts me in a position of some difficulty. It is not my wish—indeed, it is foreign to my policy—to disoblige the parents of the boys who are entrusted to my, ah, uh, care, and I should like, if possible, to do what Mr. Ford asks. It appears that certain business matters call him to the north of England for a few days, this rendering it impossible for him to receive little Ogden to-morrow. It is not my custom to criticize parents who have paid me the compliment of placing their sons at the most malleable and important period of their lives in my, ah, uh, charge, but I must say that a little longer notice would have been, ah, uh, in fact, a convenience. But Mr. Ford, like so many of his countrymen, is what I believe is called a hustler. He does it now, as the expression is. In short, he wished to leave little Ogden at the school for the first few days of the holidays, and I should be extremely obliged, Mr. Burns, if you should find it possible to stay here and, ah, uh, look after him." Audrey stopped writing and turned in her chair, the first intimation she had given that she had heard Mr. Abney's remarks. "'It really won't be necessary to trouble Mr. Burns,' she said, without looking at me. "'I can take care of Ogden very well by myself.' In the case of an, ah, uh, ordinary boy, Mrs. Sheridan, I should not hesitate in leaving you in sole charge, as you have very kindly offered to stay and help me in this matter. But we must recollect not only—I speak frankly—not only the peculiar, ah, uh, disposition of this particular lad, but also the fact that those ruffians who visited the house that night may possibly seize the opportunity to make a fresh attack. I should not feel, ah, uh, justified in thrusting so heavy a responsibility upon you." There was reason in what he said. Audrey made no reply. I heard her pen tapping on the desk and deduced her feelings. I myself felt like a prisoner, who, having filed through the bars of his cell, is removed to another on the eve of escape. I had so braced myself up to endure to the end of the term, and no longer, that this postponement of the day of release had a crushing effect." Mr. Abney coughed and lowered his voice confidentially. "'I would stay myself, but the fact is, I am called to London on very urgent business, and shall be unable to return for a day or so. My late pupil, the, ah, uh, the Earl of Buxton, has been I can rely on your discretion, Mr. Burns, has been in trouble with the authorities at Eton, and his guardian, an old college friend of mine, the—in fact, the Duke of Bessborough, who, rightly or wrongly, places—er—considerable um, reliance on my advice, is anxious to consult me on the matter. I shall return as soon as possible, and you will readily understand that, in the circumstances, my time will not be my own. I must place myself unreservedly at, ah, uh, Bessborough's disposal." He pressed the bell. "'In the event of your observing any suspicious characters in the neighborhood, you have the telephone and can instantly communicate with the police. And you will have the assistance of—' The door opened and smooth Sam Fisher entered. "'You rang, sir?' 
Ah, come in, White, and close the door. I have something to say to you. I have just been informing Mr. Burns that Mr. Ford has written asking me to allow his son to stay on at the school for the first few days of the vacation." He turned to Audrey. "'You will doubtless be surprised, Mrs. Sheridan, and possibly, ah, somewhat startled, to learn the peculiar nature of White's position at Sanstead House. You have no objection to my informing Mrs. Sheridan, White, in consideration of the fact that you will be working together in this matter? Just so. White is a detective in the employment of Pinkerton's agency. Mr. Ford—a slight frown appeared on his lofty brow—Mr. Ford obtained his present situation for him in order that he might protect his son in the event of—ah—in uh, fact, any attempt to remove him. I saw Audrey start. A quick flush came to her face. She uttered a little exclamation of astonishment. "'Just so,' said Mr. Abney, by way of comment on this. "'You are naturally surprised. The whole arrangement is excessively unusual, and, I may say, ah, disturbing. However, you have your duty to fulfill to your employer, White, and you will, of course, remain here with the boy.' Yes, sir." I found myself looking into a bright brown eye that gleamed with genial triumph. The other was closed. In the exuberance of the moment Smooth Sam had had the bad taste to wink at me. "'You will have Mr. Burns to help you, White. He has kindly consented to postpone his departure during the short period in which I shall be compelled to be absent. I had no recollection of having given any kind of consent, but I was very willing to have it assumed, and I was glad to see that Mr. Fisher, though Mr. Abney did not observe it, was visibly taken aback by this piece of information. But he made one of his swift recoveries. "'It is very kind of Mr. Burns,' he said in his fruitiest voice, "'but I hardly think it will be necessary to put him to the inconvenience of altering his plans. I am sure that Mr. Ford would prefer the entire charge of the affair to be in my hands." He had not chosen a happy moment for the introduction of the millionaire's name. Mr. Abney was a man of method, who hated any dislocation of the fixed routine of life, and Mr. Ford's letter had upset him. The Ford family, father and son, were just then extremely unpopular with him. He crushed Sam. What Mr. Ford would or would not prefer is, in this particular matter, beside the point. The responsibility for the boy, while he remains on the school premises, is, ah, uh, mine, and I shall take such precautions as seem fit and adequate to him, myself irrespective of those which, in your opinion, might suggest themselves to Mr. Ford, as I cannot be here myself, owing to— Ah, uh, urgent business in London, I shall certainly take advantage of Mr. Burns's kind offer to remain as my deputy." He paused and blew his nose, his invariable custom after these occasional outbursts of his. Sam had not wilted beneath the storm. He waited, unmoved, till all was over. "'I am afraid I shall have to be more explicit,' he said. "'I had hoped to avoid scandal and unpleasantness but I see it is impossible." Mr. Abney's astonished face emerged slowly from behind his handkerchief. 
I quite agree with you, sir, that somebody should be here to help me look after the boy, but not Mr. Burns. I am sorry to have to say it, but I do not trust Mr. Burns." Mr. Abney's look of astonishment deepened. I, too, was surprised. I was so unlike Sam to fling away his chances on a blundering attack like this. "'What do you mean?' demanded Mr. Abney. Mr. Burns is after the boy himself. He came to kidnap him." Mr. Abney, as he had every excuse for doing, grunted with amazement. I achieved the ringing laugh of amused innocence. It was beyond me to fathom Sam's mind. He could not suppose that any credence would be given to his wild assertion. It seemed to me that disappointment had caused him momentarily to lose his head. Are you mad, White? No, sir, I can prove what I say. If I had not gone to London with him that last time, he'd have gotten away with the boy then for certain. For an instant an uneasy thought came to me that he might have something in reserve, something unknown to me, which had encouraged him to this direct attack. I dismissed the notion. There could be nothing. Mr. Abney had turned to me with a look of hopeless bewilderment. I raised my eyebrows. "'Ridiculous,' I said. That this was the only comment seemed to be Mr. Abney's view. He turned on Sam with the pettish anger of the mild man. "'What do you mean, White, by coming to me with such a preposterous story?' "'I don't say Mr. Burns wished to kidnap the boy in the ordinary way,' said Sam imperturbably. "'Like those men who came that night.' He had a special reason. Mr. and Mrs. Ford, as of course you know, sir, are divorced. Mr. Burns was trying to get the boy away and take him back to his mother." I heard Audrey give a little gasp. Mr. Abney's anger became modified by a touch of doubt. I could see that these words, by lifting the accusation from the wholly absurd to the somewhat plausible, had impressed him. Once again I was gripped by the uneasy feeling that Sam had an unsuspected card to play. This might be bluff, but it had a sinister ring. "'You might say,' went on Sam smoothly, "'that this was creditable to Mr. Burns's heart. But from my employer's viewpoint, and yours too, it was a chivalrous impulse that needed to be checked. Will you please read this, sir?' He handed a letter to Mr. Abney who adjusted his glasses and began to read, at first in a detached, judicial way, then with startled eagerness. "'I felt it necessary to search among Mr. Burns's papers, sir, in the hope of finding.' And then I knew what he had found. From the first the blue-gray notepaper had had a familiar look. I recognized it now. It was Cynthia's letter that damning document which I had been mad enough to read to him in London. His prediction that the luck would change had come amazingly true. I caught Sam's eye. For the second time he was unfeeling enough to wink. It was a rich, comprehensive wink, as expressive and joyous as a college yell. Mr. Abney had absorbed the letter and was struggling for speech. I could appreciate his emotion. If he had not actually been nurturing a viper in his bosom, he had come, from his point of view, very near it. 
Of all men, a schoolmaster necessarily looks with the heartiest dislike on the would-be kidnapper. As for me, my mind was in a whirl. I was entirely without a plan, without the very beginnings of a plan, to help me cope with this appalling situation. I was crushed by a sense of the utter helplessness of my position. To denounce Sam was impossible. To explain my comparative innocence was equally out of the question. The suddenness of the onslaught had deprived me of the power of coherent thought. I was routed. Mr. Abney was speaking. "'Is your name Peter, Mr. Burns?' I nodded. Speech was beyond me. "'This letter is written by, ah, uh, by a lady. It asks you in set terms to, ah, uh, hasten to kidnap Ogden Ford. Do you wish me to read it to you, or do you confess to knowing its contents?' He waited for a reply. I had none to make. You do not deny that you came to Sanstead House for the deliberate purpose of kidnapping Ogden Ford?" I had nothing to say. I caught a glimpse of Audrey's face, cold and hard, and shifted my eyes quickly. Mr. Abney gulped. His face wore the reproachful expression of a codfish when jerked out of the water on the end of a line. He stared at me with pained repulsion. That scoundrelly old buccaneer Sam did the same. He looked like a shocked bishop. "'I, uh, trusted you implicitly,' said Mr. Abney. He wagged his head at me reproachfully. With a flicker of spirit I glared at him. He only wagged the more. It was, I think, the blackest moment of my life. A wild desire for escape on any term surged over me. That look on Audrey's face was biting into my brain like acid. I will go and pack," I said. This is the end of all things, I said to myself. I had suspended my packing in order to sit on my bed and brood. I was utterly depressed. There are crises in a man's life when reason fails to bring the slightest consolation. In vain I tried to tell myself that what had happened was, in essence, precisely what, twenty-four hours ago, I was so eager to bring about. It amounted to this, that now, at last, Audrey had definitely gone out of my life. From now on I could have no relations with her of any sort. Was not this exactly what twenty-four hours ago I had wished? Twenty-four hours ago had I not said to myself that I would go away and never see her again? Undoubtedly. Nevertheless I sat there and groaned in spirit. It was the end of all things. A mild voice interrupted my meditations. "'Can I help?' Sam was standing in the doorway, beaming on me with invincible good humour. "'You are handling them wrong. Allow me. A moment more, and you would have ruined the crease.' I became aware of a pair of trousers hanging limply in my grasp. He took them from me, and, folding them neatly, placed them in my trunk. "'Don't get all worked up about it, Sonny,' he said. It's the fortune of war. Besides, what does it matter to you? Judging by that very snug apartment in London, you have quite enough money for a young man. Losing your job here won't break you. And if you're worrying about Mrs. Ford and her feelings, don't. I guess she's probably forgotten all about the nugget by this time. So cheer up. 
You're all right. He stretched out a hand to pat me on the shoulder, then thought better of it and drew it back. Think of my happiness if you want something to make you feel good. Believe me, young man, it's some. I could sing. Gee, when I think that it's all plain sailing now and no more troubles, I could dance. You don't know what it means to me, putting through this deal. I wish you knew Mary. That's her name. You must come and visit us, Sonny, when we're fixed up in the home. There'll always be a knife and fork for you. We'll make you one of the family. Lord, I can see the place as plain as I can see you. Nice frame house with a good porch. Me and a rocker in my shirt-sleeves, smoking a cigar and reading the baseball news. Mary in another rocker, mending my socks and nursing the cat. We'll sure have a cat. Two cats. I like cats. And a goat in the front garden. Say, it'll be great." And on the word, emotion overcoming prudence, he brought his fat hand down with a resounding smack on my bowed shoulders. There is a limit. I bounded to my feet. Get out, I yelped. Get out of here. Sure, he replied agreeably. He rose without haste and regarded me compassionately. Cheer up, son. Be a sport. There are moments when the best of men become melodramatic. I offer this as excuse for my next observation. Clenching my fists and glaring at him, I cried, I'll foil you yet, you hound. Some people have no soul for the dramatic. He smiled tolerantly. Sure, he said. Anything you like, desperate Desmond. Enjoy yourself. And he left me. End of Part 2, Chapter 12